the Truth in My Days podcast, where we defend the Word of God against the challenges of men. Hello all. Today we have Sonia interviewing John about the last 12 verses of Mark chapter 16. Liberal scholars claim that this is an inauthentic passage, but is this true? Have a listen and find out. We are continuing from the previous episode. We hope you enjoy. Well, yes. Verse 8 is, is finishing the passage about the women in the tomb. The young man tells him, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him, but go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him as he said to you. So they went out and fled from the tomb, for they trembled and were amazed. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Now when he rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene. Well, so verse 8 is finishing this account of the women in the tomb. And verse 9 tells us that Jesus appeared for its man and Magdalene. Well, so now we've, the topic has switched to Jesus. How is that a problem? Well, I don't know. But according to Metzger, the subject of verse 8 is the women, whereas Jesus is the presumed subject in verse 9. He says it's a problem. I'm not seeing the problem. The only thing I can imagine that he wants to see as a problem is that verse 9 is Jesus. It doesn't say his name. It says when he rose right on the first day. So switch a subject without without naming Jesus specifically, as if the context didn't somehow make it clear nobody else rose. The, the young man said, Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified, he is risen. Verse 9, now when he rose. Well, so is it clear in the context who we're talking about? Yeah. I would think so. And as you read through Mark, you will do you do find this stylistic thing that he often has conversations between two people or events between two people where he just he 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 switches from one to another without specifying the name it does happen but here because of the wording jesus of nazareth who was crucified he has risen now when he rose well so this is not an issue at all in the context very clear what he's talking about in verse 9 mary magdalene is identified even though she has been mentioned only a few lines before 1547 and 16.1 this one's very strange here here, Metzger thinks Mary should not have been identified because she was mentioned eight verses earlier. I mean, they said her name eight verses earlier. Why are you why are you identifying her? Well, okay, let's see. Eight verses early, it looks like they, they identified her and they identified the other Mary, too, as if to distinguish them. So then when they're mentioning her again... 61? Well, when, yeah, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James. So then... In verse 9, if they're going to mention a Mary again, well, which one is it? Of course, they have to say which one, Mary Magdalene. Yeah. So Matsker thinks Mary should not have been identified because she was mentioned eight verses earlier. Whereas in the previous point, he complains that Jesus should have been identified even though it was mentioned three verses earlier. How does that fit? I, I wonder if he's even listening to himself because he points out that Mary was identified in 1547, one verse before being identified in 16. Why also, again, in, in 47, it's in the same sense as Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of somebody, Joseph. So, of course, they have to identify her to distinguish her from the other one. Well, exactly. In 1547, 61, he, she's, she's mentioned as a group of women. In, in this verse, he's telling us who he appeared to first. What should he put in there? First, appeared to her first, uh, her, just say her. Like the, He mentioned groups of women before. Just uh, saying her wouldn't tell who he appeared to first. He has to mention her by name here. So what kind of argument is this? It just makes no sense. 
the use of Anastas de and the position of proton first okay, are appropriate at the beginning of a comprehensive narrative, but they're ill-suited in the continuation of verses one to eight. Now, this is complete rubbish. Okay? Proton first appears 38 times in the narrative portions of the New Testament. This is Gospel, Books, and Acts. 37 of those times it is not at the beginning of a comprehensive narrative. So he's telling us that, oh, uh, proton uh, is ill-suited to continuation. It should be at the beginning of a comprehensive narrative, whereas 37 out of 38 times it's used in the, in the gospel is not at the beginning of a comprehensive narrative. So where do you get the claim that that's where it should fit? Made up. Yeah. But again, who checks? Now read this argument from, from Metz and say, oh, yeah, yeah well, that makes sense. How many of them bother to look at where proton is used? and see whether it's really true that they are they are appropriate at the beginning of a narrative, ill-suited in a continuation of a narrative. Because if they check, they would see. Anastasia, having, and having risen, okay? It, it, it should be at the beginning of a comprehensive narrative. It shouldn't be in the continuation. But I would ask, like, doesn't it have to go at that part of the narrative where he is risen? Well, I don't Which know. Which is maybe, not at maybe, the beginning of the narrative. Maybe they're not talking about the thigh that means risen. Maybe they, are they? Maybe he's referring to the aorist participle with de or something like that. No, no, he's clearly talking about where it is in the narrative, not not the, the grammatical form. What else? Okay. The other women of verses one to eight are now forgotten. Well, what does it say in, in Mark sixteen nine? He appeared first to Mary Magdalene. Well, he didn't appear first to the other women. So that's why they're now, quote-unquote, forgotten. Does that make, again, any sense? Uh, and yet this is what takes in so many evangelicals. So there you go. There's no internal or external evidence against the authenticity of these last 12 verses. In fact, the, the evidence, particularly the external evidence, the evidence of the manuscripts, the evidence of the church fathers is conclusive. There's no real valid way to deny the last 12 verses, but liberal scholars insist that they must be out. And as I said, unfortunately, too many evangelicals, in fact, most evangelicals, evangelical scholars go along with this. They just don't bother to examine the facts carefully themselves. They hear these kind of arguments they accept them, they regurgitate them, and they don't do due diligence on examining these claims, as we have done. For example, one popular ministry, Creation Ministries International, their New Testament uh, specialist, says this. The long ending, and by that she means the last 12 verses, the long ending seems cobbled together from the other Gospels and Acts. The road to a mouse appearance is taken from Luke. The appearance to the eleven and the Great Commission are similarly from the other Gospels. The driving out demons could come from one of the commissioning of the disciples. And immunity to poison and snake bites could be an allusion to Paul's survival of the snake bite in Acts. The command about baptism has frequently been mishandled by some who commit a logical fallacy. So there's no material in the long ending that we don't have elsewhere. But you don't have that combination elsewhere. No, you don't have that combination elsewhere. But otherwise, does this sound like a good argument? Well, unless she wants to think that 
and all the other places where the Gospels talk about the same event that one must have taken it from somewhere else or from the other. Yes, it's an extreme example of what's called literary dependence, which is something we'll look at in another program. Is also something quite damaging to the credibility of the Gospel books. But here's the thing. If these are historical events, which they are, and four different people wrote about them, wouldn't you expect that the different elements are spread among the four writers? Yeah, doesn't that even happen with today's newspapers too? Well, exactly. This is why there's no material in the long inning that we don't have elsewhere. Even if that were true, it would be irrelevant. It's because they're all describing the same historical events, right? Otherwise, the idea is that, well, as long as you have similar events, as you said, it means that one person wrote it and, and the other writers got it from that one person. Like That, that does not make sense. And, and some of these are, are really stretching it. Immunity to poison and snake bites could be an allusion to Paul's survival of the snake bite in Acts. Does that sound at all similar? No, not at all, in fact. If, if you look at what's in uh, Mark chapter 16, in that passage, now it's, it's a bit cryptic, but what it says is, he said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Okay? So, she said, well, she got that, he got that from Matthew. Well, and if that's what Jesus said, that's where Peter got it from. And Mark wrote down what Peter remembered. He who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. And then, and these signs will follow those who believe in my name. They will cast out demons. They will speak with new tongues. They will take up serpents. And if they drink anything deadly, it will by no means hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick and they will recover. So, What's the part about this actual snake bite? There's nothing about snake bite. It simply says they will take up serpents. Period. It says nothing about what will happen to them. And then another point, if they drink anything deadly, it will by no means hurt them. So there's an account in Acts where, where Paul, this is during one of the shipwrecks, I think, and he's, he's building, I think, a fire, and a, a serpent comes out and latches onto his arm, and the people, the locals think, oh, this proves Paul's a bad guy, he's going to die from the snake bite, and he just shakes off the snake, he doesn't die. That's not exactly taking up a serpent. It's he's not... being attacked by one, and he happened to survive because God protected him. Yeah, it's not at all that. And, and where's immunity to poison in that? Well, maybe the poison from the snake bite, but then, of course, in Mark is categorized separately. Not just that. Snakes don't have poison. Snakes have venom. It says here in Mark, they will if they drink anything deadly. Oh, and you never trip. drink the snake venom. And, and if you did drink snake venom, it wouldn't do anything to you. Venom has to get into your bloodstream to do anything to you. Unless you have some kind of cut inside your esophagus, you can drink snake venom. It won't do anything to you. So the, the incident of Paul and the snake is not where this thing about drinking poison will not hurt you came from. In this passage, it does sometimes confuse Christians. Because they assume that every one of these powers, so to speak, is given to every Christian. Whereas I think the way Jesus worded it is, these are signs that follow the disciples as a, whole, as a whole. So this will be done by some disciples, this will be done by others, this might be done by only one, and so on. It's the signs. Because we see at the end of Mark, after he ascends, it says that 
Jesus was working with them and confirming the word through the accompanying signs. So he's, he's picking and choosing signs to do through different disciples. This is not like every single disciple can drink poison. Thank you, everyone, for listening today. Unfortunately, we have run out of time. But please join us for the next part tomorrow. Same time and same place. If you enjoy our content and think this is important material, the best compliment you can pay is by sharing this with your friends and family. This helps us out a lot. Also, if you enjoyed today's program, please like, comment, share, and subscribe to this podcast. We would love to hear from you. Thank you for listening to the Truth In My Days podcast with John Torse. We would love to hear from you. Please feel free to share any questions or comments you may have. You can reach us on Facebook, Instagram, MeWe, and YouTube. Simply search Truth In My Days as one word. Again, Truth In My Days as one word, no spaces in between. And you can connect with us. You may also visit our website for more comprehensive material and to learn more about our ministry. Our website is truthinmydays.com. Thank you. Thank you.